you have your Bible here this morning, we're going to be in the book of 2 Kings chapter 5. Still studying through the life of Elisha, the prophet, and I hope that these messages have been a blessing to you. 2 Kings 5, the title of our message today is The Leprosy of Pride. You know, athletes many times are the mouthpieces of boasting and arrogance and pride, and there was nobody better at talking the game uh, than the great Muhammad Ali, the world championship boxer. And there's a story that's told that uh, back when he was in his heyday, uh, roping a dope and so on, uh, that he had taken a seat on the 747 on a flight that was headed out. And uh, the stewardess came by and noticed that uh, Mr. Ali did not have his seatbelt on. And so she told him, said, uh, Sir, uh, please put your seatbelt on uh, as we're getting ready to take off. And she went off and dealt with some other customers. Well, she came back and noticed a second time that uh, uh, Muhammad Ali had ignored her, uh, shrugged her off, and she said, Sir, uh, we're getting ready to take off. You please uh, ought to put on your seatbelt. And uh, he, he said to her very uh, pridefully, Ma'am, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And uh, she walked on, kind of uh, furrowed her brow and shrugged her shoulders. Uh, they were coming around to their final approach. Right before takeoff, she came back and noticed again, he hadn't put on his seatbelt, and she said, Sir, Mr. Ali, we cannot take off if you do not buckle up. Please put your seatbelt on. And he said, Woman, didn't you hear me? Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she popped right back to him and said, Well, sir, Superman don't need no airplane either. <laughs> So that's the vanity of pride. And you know the Bible says that pride goes before a fall. Well, uh, pride is one of the chief sins of man. And for those who are in the limelight, it can make our head really big. Well, one person who dealt with this was one of the most sought-after magicians. His name is Jim Monroe. He traveled the world, wowing audiences with his tricks and illusions. And he had it all, money and fame and a beautiful family and a dream career. Well, he sat down with Billy Graham's Decision magazine a few years ago, and he gave an interview, and he said this, As a professional illusionist, I spent hours thinking up ways to make people think something is happening when it really isn't. So over time, he said, I developed a bit of skepticism about how things work. When you're a magician, you realize that most of what's going on behind the scenes is fake. And so to me, the idea of an all-powerful God seemed so silly. And when I would talk to people who went to church, I remember thinking they were just falling for a religious trick. God was a crutch for weak people. Well, needless to say, as Jim Monroe became more successful, his heart hardened toward the things of faith in God. But his journey took a tragic and unexpected turn when his health started disappearing before his eyes. It happened 
in 2008, he began to feel a significant pain in his leg, so overwhelming that his wife rushed him to the emergency room. And after the doctors looked at him, they came in with bad news and they said, Mr. Monroe, you have a very aggressive form of leukemia. We cannot cure you for sure from this disease, they said, but there is something we would like to try. It's a bone marrow transplant. And the doctor explained, Mr. Monroe, the problem with your body is that your white blood cells are making bad copies of bad copies. Your body is tricked. It's deceiving itself. Monroe wrote about that. He said, here I had lived my whole life knowing and learning how tricks worked, and yet here I was in the doctor's office learning that the trick was on me. He said, I was dying and powerless to stop it. Now we'll find out more about Jim Monroe's story a little later on, but I think that the testimonies that we've heard so far shows us that God can chip away at the granite shell of a prideful heart with the chisel of pain. C.S. Lewis, he wrote about this in one of his books called The Problem of Pain. He said this, Quote, the human spirit will not begin to surrender self-will to God as long as all seems to be well with it. God whispers to us in our pleasures, but He shouts in our pain. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain, He said, removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. So the problem of pain and the problem of pride... If there was one man who knew about this, it would have to be the character, the general, the soldier that we're going to meet today in 2 Kings 5, a man named Naaman. And like Jim Monroe, he had the props kicked out from under him while he was going up the ladder of success. And just like so many who are self-sufficient without God, were it not for a personal crisis, it is likely that Naaman would have never sought out God or his prophet Elisha. So we're going to study this man Naaman and his encounter with the prophet Elisha today, 2 Kings 5. And what we are going to see is how God humbles haughty hearts. If you're taking notes today, I want you to see in the first five verses of chapter 5 a powerful man's contamination. Powerful man's contamination. Let's read verse 1 together. And the Bible says, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given him victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. Watch this. But he was a leper. So Naaman, picture him. He's a five-star general in the Syrian army. If we were to modernize him, we would say he had spit-shined boots. He had medals pinned to his chest. And yes, an ego bigger than George Patton. According to the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, it was Naaman's arrow in 1 Kings 22 that pierced the armor of King Ahab and killed him. But under the military brass and under all the braggadocio was a dead man walking. Because the Bible says at the end of verse 1, But he was a leper. 
Now, in the ancient world, you need to know there was no cure for leprosy. Given enough time, this disease would slowly erode away at this man's hands and his feet, his face and his eyes. He would be a public outcast. And so think about it here. This once powerful man who commanded men by the thousands, who gave orders and took life, was being made weak and he would no longer be able to lead men out to war. Now, I've been reading a book by Dr. Paul Brand. He was a missionary in India for several years and he revolutionized the medical world's understanding of leprosy. Dr. Brand's major discovery among treating leprosy patients was that the disfigurement that we see was actually caused by a neurological damage. And so the leprosy destroys the body's pain network. And Dr. Brand wrote a brilliant book called The Gift of Pain. And in that book, he talked about how the lepers that he knew would burn their hand in a fire and not know about it. Or they would gash their foot on a piece of glass or metal and the pain wouldn't register in their body. And because they didn't know they were cut or there was a wound there, then infection would set in and then the disfigurement and the eroding. Dr. Brand calls leprosy in his book a painless hell. And he said that after operating on leprosy patients, it became his common practice to send them home with a cat because to the horror of many of those leprosy patients, they would wake up the next morning having their fingers and toes chewed away by the rats and they didn't know it because they couldn't feel the pain. So leprosy is not only a fearful disease and it's a fatal disease, but according to the Bible, it's a figurative disease. What do I mean by that? I mean that leprosy in the Bible is always a type or a picture of the corroding and corrupting effect of sin. Warren Wiersbe wrote in his commentary, look at what he said. He said, like leprosy, sin is deeper than the skin. It spreads, it defiles whatever it touches, it isolates its victims, it kills without respect to status or race and is fit only for the fire. So you can see the parallel between the disease of leprosy and the disease of sin. Now, Naaman was in dire need of a medical miracle, and everybody is in dire need of a spiritual miracle. Everyone has been infected with a terminal disease called sin. The Bible says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. That's Romans 5.12. But friend, there's a cure and there's only one cure, and it's the blood of Jesus Christ which cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. But I want you to know that even though Naaman was corrupted and condemned, God was working in this man's life. In the background, in the providence of God, notice what happens. There's a servant girl in his household. Naaman being a great general, had gone off to war and captured a little Israelite girl, a little Jewish girl, brought her back, made her a slave in his household, and notice how God worked through this. Verse 2. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, 
Would that my Lord were here with the prophet who is in Samaria. Who's she talking about? Elisha. He would cure him of leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so here we see, through the providence of God, the testimony of this little servant girl changed this man's life. Because now, Naaman is going to seek a cure, and wouldn't you, if you were cursed with that disease, going to seek a cure from Elisha. Now think about it. At this moment, a simple servant girl holds in her hands the destiny of one of the world's most powerful men. Now, had you and I had been in her shoes, we may have not said a word. In fact, we probably would have thought, well, this serves you right, Naaman. This is exactly what you get for living by the sword. You ripped me away from my family. This is nothing but God's just judgment on your wicked life. You deserve this leprosy, and I'm going to watch you die slowly and wretchedly. She didn't have that idea, did she? For whatever reason... She was moved with compassion to tell of God's prophet. And friend, I read this and I think about you never know how God might use your simple little witness to change somebody's life for eternity. We often look at the wealthy and the powerful and those in places of high regard and we think, well, they don't need the gospel. They don't want the gospel. But friend, when you start talking brass tacks with people, you realize it doesn't matter how much money's in your bank account, doesn't matter how much your name is in the news, or how world famous you are, those people are still broken, still lonely, and still in need of a Savior. The rich and powerful need Jesus just as much as those in the gutter. You start talking to them, and you realize, hey, they've got all of these things, but it's vanity, it's chasing after the wind, and inside, they're destitute and hungry. Billy Graham tells a great story in one of his books about a favorite mentor of his. He said that this man was brilliant. He had three doctorate degrees. He was a very prestigious university professor. But he said in spite of all of his accomplishments, all of his accolades, he was depressed, he was suicidal, and he was unfulfilled. Dr. Graham said that one day this uh, very distinguished professor stopped on the side of the street at a shoeshine station. And he said he watched that shoeshine man brushing up, blacking in his loafers. And he looked into the eyes of this cheerful little servant man brushing out his shoes and he said, Hey, what is it about you? Why are you so happy? Why are you so joyful? Why do you have a, a spring in your step? And this little shoeshine man said, Well, that's easy. He said, Because I know Jesus. Jesus is my Savior. God loves me. My sins have been forgiven. And sir, when I die, I'm going to heaven. Billy Graham said that that professor, he heard that and it haunted him. He didn't have that happiness. He didn't have that joy. He didn't have that peace and assurance. And he said that professor lost many nights of sleep, but it put him on a journey to search for God. And one day he stumbled into a little church and he heard a pastor preach about God's simple love, John 3.16. 
And he said that that professor gave his life to Jesus Christ. It so changed his life that he renounced his position there at that university and went to teach at a tiny little Christian college where Ruth and Billy Graham attended class. And Billy Graham said that the life of that man impacted me greatly, but it all started because of a simple shoeshine man. And what have we been talking about? Who's your one? Friend, it doesn't matter how little or how small your witness may be. You trust God and you tell about the great Savior and you just see what God does with that. One of the best definitions of evangelism that I've still heard today, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about a somebody who can save anybody. Don't you keep the cure to sin to yourself. You tell them about the great physician. You tell them about Jesus and say, guess what, friend? He's still accepting new patients today. The grace of God hasn't been exhausted. There's still room at the cross for you. And the blood of Jesus can still wipe away your sin debt. A powerful man's contamination. We see number two, a prideful man's humiliation. Prideful man's humiliation. Before Naaman could experience God's healing touch, he had to go through a humbling process. You see, not only was this man eaten up on the outside with the disease of leprosy, but on the inside, he was being eaten up with the leprosy of pride. Friend, do you know that pride is still the number one sin? It still prevents people today from experiencing God's Amazing grace. In fact, I've come to believe that it's going to be pride that's going to send more people to a devil's hell than drinking or drugs or homosexuality or adultery or whatever you fill in the blank of what sin. I think it all goes back to pride. But the Lord is going to graciously break down this general's pride. You know, God still breaks down hard hearts today too. He does it in three ways and we're going to see how He did it in the life of Naaman. The first way that God does it is God humbles the proud, watch this, by canceling out human resources. Notice what happens in verse 5. It says, And so he went taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of leprosy, And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Have I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Naaman shows up there in the presence of the king of Israel and he brings with him the letter from the king of Syria and he is looking for a cure. But the Bible says that when the king heard about this, he rent his clothing and he said, Hey man, you're in the wrong place. I can't help you. But notice what Naaman brought with him. He brought with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten changes of clothing. A scholar has estimated that they equivocate that same value today as $3.1 million dollars. So Naaman has emptied out his 401k. He's probably borrowed from friends and relatives to bring whatever it may cost to buy a cure. But all the riches in the world couldn't help him. All the wealth, listen, all the fame, all the championships, 
All the great things that Kobe Bryant accomplished in his NBA career couldn't get him one more second of life. You know why? Because you can't buy more life. The Bible says it's here for a moment and then vanishes quickly away. doesn't matter how big and bad and how popular you are, how rich and wealthy, how well known you are. Death is coming for every one of us. It's appointed once for a man to die. And after this, the judgment. But what an illustration this is as Naaman comes in with his treasure trove of how we must stand every sinner before God. And that is spiritually bankrupt. What did Jesus say in Mark chapter 8, verse 36? What shall it profit a man if he were to gain the whole world and lose his soul? A few years ago I read an article in USA Today about Warren Buffett. You know, he's the world's wealthiest man or one of them the top of the list. And in this article, they explain how Warren Buffett had decided to sign over, listen to this, $30.7 billion, with a B, to Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Here's what the article said. Warren Buffett's contribution of $1.5 billion a year to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation will be used to seek cures for the world's diseases and improve American education but listen to what happened. During the ceremony, Buffett made a statement. Here's what he said. I'm not an enthusiast for dynastic wealth, particularly when the alternative is billions of people having much poorer hands in life than I have. And then he said this. There's more than one way to go to heaven, and this is a really great way. Did you hear that? Friend, listen to me. God is not impressed by somebody's bank account. God is not impressed by how high you may have think you have risen on the ladder of success, what your job title is, how many achievements you have in your name. You know why? Because God's grace is not for sale. What did the old hymn say? Nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling. You want God's grace, you have to come empty-handed, poor and beggarly to God. You can only get grace with empty hands. Peter said, we're not saved, we're not redeemed by gold or by silver or the traditions of our forefathers, but by the precious blood of Jesus. You see, the first way that God deals with a prideful heart is He takes away all human resources. Everything that that person would say accrues to their account, like Naaman, takes all those riches, all that strength, gives them a disease and says... You're going to have to seek me. How else does God deal with prideful hearts? Well, the second thing I want you to see here is that God humbles the proud by contradicting human reason. He contradicts human reason. Notice verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you done this? Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know... There is a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. Watch this. Elisha wouldn't even go out and meet him. Verse 10, And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. 
Watch this. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Elisha didn't do it the way that Naaman thought he would do it. Not only was he insulted because Elisha didn't even come out and give him a face-to-face, he didn't like the procedure that he laid out for the sick man to go be cured. He said, all right, here's the word of the Lord, go and dip seven times in the Jordan River. And as Naaman thought about that, he said, that makes absolutely no sense. Elisha, why can't you just come out and do some incantation or ritual? Hold your hand over me, pray. Why can't you do that? Why do I have to go to the Jordan River and do this ridiculous thing that you've asked me to do? You know what? As I read that, I thought, that's the prideful heart of man and woman today. We think we're a better expert on how we can get to heaven than God. We think we know more about how we can get our cure from sin than the way God has already prescribed. But don't you see here that God is assaulting Naaman's pride. The issue here wasn't bathing in the Jordan River per se. There was nothing miraculous about that. The issue is the simple obedience of faith. Taking God at His word and doing it. You know people have all kinds of hang-ups today when you tell them the simple gospel You explain to them how Jesus Christ came and He lived a perfect sinless life, how He loved them, died in their place, the death that they deserved, was buried and raised again. That you can't come to God through works, it's only through the cross. There's only one way, and it's not by works, it's only by faith. You start explaining that to people, and you know what? Human reason comes in, and people say, I don't like that. I don't like the way that God has given us. That doesn't make sense to me. That doesn't add up. Don't I have to go to church? Or don't I have to jump through a religious hoop? Or don't I have to do something? It's pride. We want to be able to thump our chest and say, Look what I did for you, God. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22? He said, The Jews demand a sign and the Greeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly... To the Gentiles. The cross always is and will be foolishness to this world. They hear the gospel and they say, That's odd. That's bloody. That's too simplistic for me. The intellectuals think about the cross and they say, That's bloody. That's gruesome. That's primitive. How does the death of a Jewish carpenter have any saving effect on me? But friend, they miss the whole point. What's complicated about going and dipping in the Jordan River? What's hard about that? A child could do that. But when the heart right here is puffed up with pride, even the simplest thing, you can take a child and explain to them their need for Jesus. That's why Jesus said if you want to come into the kingdom of God, you've got to become like a little child. That's the whole point of the gospel. It's simply glorious and gloriously simple. Vance Havner, the old southern preacher, he said it like this. Somebody asked him one day, he said, Preacher, I don't understand it. How can the blood of Jesus wash us clean? How can it make us clean from sin? He said, I don't understand electricity. 
But I don't intend to sit in the dark until I do. Friend, you don't have to understand it all. Just believe it all and trust in what God has said. You don't have to have it all intellectually figured out. I don't. But I believe what God has said. God humbles the proud by contradicting human reason. And He humbles the proud by canceling out human resources. And then lastly, and I close here, He humbles the proud by confronting human reputation. Confronting human reputation. Look at verse 12. Look what Naaman says. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? Now you read that, and you can practically smell the stench of Naaman's pride rising up to the heavens. His last objection is, he says, Jordan River, I'm not going and dipping down there. That's an ugly, dirty, nasty body of water. By the way, there's better rivers at home that I could go do that in. What the prophet has asked me to do is beneath my standing. I will not lower myself to that. He didn't like the place. He didn't like the procedure. And how many people today have the same mentality? Instead of coming to Jesus, they go to somebody else for their cure. I'll go try what Buddha has to say. I'll do what Muhammad prescribes. I'll listen to Charles Darwin or Oprah or some guru on TV. Maybe they've got the answer. I don't want to go to Jesus. Instead of bowing their knees to Christ, they'll say, I'll try and take my chances another way. I'll go by the way of philanthropy or church membership or religious devotion. You say, well, there's only one place you can go to get joy and hope and love and peace and mercy and grace, and that's Calvary. And they say, I don't like it there. It's bloody. It's gruesome. I have to bow my knee. I'll try and go somewhere else like Rome or Mecca or the Ganges River, or some other holy place. Friend, listen to me. If they had a radio station in hell, you know what the number one song that would be played on there? Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. The worst form of human badness is human goodness when it becomes a substitute for the cross. Everybody has... A choice of going to heaven God's way or going to hell their own way. Friend, I've seen God break down hard hearts. You would look at a man like Naaman and say it's impossible for a guy like that to be saved. Let me tell you a little story. I know a gentleman who I had tried to witness to and tried to reach for many years. Go by and visit him. Say, friend... Can I talk to you about the Lord? Let's talk about your soul. Are you ready to die? He shake his head. He say, I'm not interested. Not interested. I don't want to hear what you have to say. And I did that several times. He turned me away. Then something happened with his health. His health went south, and all of a sudden he ends up in a hospital. He's broken down and he's bedfast. 
He has no way out of his situation. I went back and I visited him one day in the hospital. I said, friend, I said, I brought my Bible with me today. Can I read for you the Word of God? He nodded. He said, yes. <laughs> what was different? The different now was that God had kicked his pride out from under him. He had nothing else to rely on. I opened up that little Gideon Bible. I started to read it from Psalm 23. As I started reading that Bible, I could see tears start to roll down his cheeks. This man had suffered so that he couldn't really speak much anymore. I said, friend, I said, would you like to accept Jesus as your Savior today? He said, yes. I said, I'm going to say a simple prayer. I said, you pray after me. He started to pray. And friend, it was a prayer that only God could have understood because his, his language was so garbled. But when I said, Amen, he said, Amen. And he opened his eyes. I believe God saved him. But he had to be humbled before he could be healed. And that's what the third point is. Look at this. A purified man's restoration. He's gone from contamination to humiliation and now restoration. Read with me real, real quickly. Verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. <laughs> It took some reasoning from his servants. And against his will, he finally submits and he bathes in the Jordan. By the way, did you notice the number seven? We saw that last week, didn't we? Why the number seven? Well, because in, it's God's number of perfection and completeness. And it was a sign that this was the way that God had prescribed for healing. By the way, what if old Naaman had gone down to the river and said, I'm just going to dip six times? You think he would have been healed? Absolutely not. You know why? Because God said seven. Obedience to the Lord is not general, it's specific. What has God asked you to be obedient in in your life? And you've gone six-sevenths of the way, but you haven't gone all the way. Friends, you've got to go all the way in with the Lord. So if God's asked you to obey in something in your life, do it with precision and do it with immediacy. But I think about old Naaman. Going down that first time, maybe he was gritting his teeth, saying some stuff under his breath. I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't even believe in the God. That, and, you know, he sounds like Yosemite. He's saying, and he goes down. One, two, finally comes up that seventh time. And as he comes up that seventh time, he looks, and he's gone. Skin as clean and white as a baby. His jaw drops open from amazement. And God has restored his health despite his reluctance. What a testimony of God's grace that he will show mercy to a sinner who enters his presence with a clenched fist and a defiant tone and says, All right, God, I'll try you in this. The hardness of God is kinder 
than the softness of man. What a great God of mercy and grace to save an old, callous, prideful man like Naaman and said, you don't deserve it, you can't earn it, but I'm going to give it to you and show you who it really is, number one, and that's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Oh, Paul Williams, he used to, they sing a song, I think about it. I used to be a beggar. I had no silver or gold. My house was just a cabin. My clothes were tattered and old. But one day I went to an altar. I bowed on my knee in prayer. And Jesus reached down and touched me. And I came up a millionaire. I went down a beggar, but I came up a millionaire. Jesus gave me a mansion on a golden square. He gave me a beautiful robe of white, a crown of jewels to wear. I went down a beggar, but I came up a millionaire. Praise God, that's the story of Naaman. He went down with nothing and came up with everything. And that's what God does in the life of a sinner. Bible says God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Friend, I'd rather humble myself before the Lord than be humbled by the Lord. And I don't know what your leprosy looks like today, but there's a cure. <laughs> and it's drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Whatever happened to old Jim Monroe, you remember him? Here's what happened. He said that they started him on that blood marrow, that bone marrow transplant. And they said, the hopes aren't good, Jim. We've got to find that one person whose DNA matches closely to yours or your body will reject it. Here's what he wrote. He said, out of 7 million people in the database of the National Bone Marrow Donor Program, there was one match, a 19-year-old girl. As they wheeled him in for that bone marrow transplant, the doctor stopped him. And he said, Jim, you're going to get a brand new birthday today. You can always celebrate the day you were born, but this will be your new birthday, the day that God gave you a second chance. He said on April 23rd, they brought a bag of blood into my room. And he said, I watched that new life drip, drip, drip into my body. And it began to grow a brand new immune system. He said, in the months after that transplant, I started piecing together what God had done. God used cancer, he wrote, to break down my hard heart. Were it not for cancer, he said, I never would have found Jesus. And he said in his testimony, the greatest thing that ever happened to me was God giving me cancer. Because through cancer, I found the Savior. He said, and when they look at my blood today, they don't see the blood of Jim Monroe but they see the blood of a donor. He said that's the way God looks at us. When He looks at our lives, the blood of Jesus covers us and He sees the pure righteousness of Jesus Christ covering our lives. Cancer, He said, was the greatest blessing that God could ever give a prideful man like me. Because I realized 
that the only way I could be saved was I had to be humbled before I could be healed. What a message. Do you need Jesus Christ today? Is there a void? Is there a need in your life? We want to give you an opportunity to respond to this message if you need Christ in your life. If you have a prayer request or if you have something that is too big for you, you can bring it to Jesus. If you're lost and undone without Him, I want you to know that He loves you and He can save you today.